We read scripture from Exodus, the first chapter of the book of Exodus. We'll read the chapter and we take as our text the last half of the chapter, verses 15 to 22. We won't reread that section, but that will be the text of our sermon this, this evening. Exodus chapter 1, we hear the inspired word of God. Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and all manner of service in the field. All their service, wherein they made them serve, was with rigor. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shipra and the name of the other Pua. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives, and said unto them, Why have ye done this thing, and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born he shall cast into the river, and every daughter... He shall save alive. We read God's word. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we look at the continued oppression that God sent upon his people while they were in Egypt. We saw this as an expression of the love and the goodness of God toward his people. God desired the holiness of Israel and therefore he separated them unto himself and preserved them in a degree of isolation. God then also ordained severe persecution to come upon them for the good of his church in Egypt. 
God's desire was to save and deliver them as a nation, not just individuals. And therefore, he had to bring them to the point where they, as a nation, desired now to get out of Egypt. God would bring them out by his mighty hand. We look this evening at the increased wrath of Pharaoh, especially as directed toward the offspring of the Israelites. The devil often seeks to try to get at us through our children. And we see that attempt here in this history. The devil pursues the children of the Israelites. And here we have a reference to the horrible attack that the devil made. But then also we see the faithfulness of God in raising up these godly midwives. We look at this history noting the murder of the boys. The fierce assault, the faithful midwives, and we notice the fruit of this. First of all, we look at that fierce assault. Pharaoh seeks the destruction of Israel through the death of her sons. The king attacks through the children. Now, why only the males? Why not the girls as well? The obvious answer has to do with the military. We realize that it was the boys who would fight. And so Pharaoh here does not want an army, and therefore he's going to try to cut off the boys because they're going to be the ones who would be active in any kind of opposition that might arise. But there's more to it. In those days, and in Israel as well, the male children affected the heritage, and they were the ones really who were the leaders and the leadership in the nation. In Israel, these were the ones leading Israel as a chosen nation of the Lord. God used the men especially to preserve his covenant people. The firstborn males and their names were recorded and copious records were maintained so that Israel was able to look back and see exactly who were, for instance, the Levites. The Levite men would be the ones that would be caring for the temple and doing the sacrifices later on. They would be able to track their lineage back and their names carefully recorded so that it was the men whose names were recorded throughout those lists. This is not only an attack then on the power and the military might of Israel, but it's an attack also on Israel's spiritual identity. But even more than that, we can understand what the Pharaoh is trying to get at here. Though it wouldn't be such a serious implication, perhaps, immediately, what would happen in a generation? Eventually, there would be a whole generation that would lack men. And this would necessitate, then, the women, if they were to find husbands, marrying Egyptians. So that Pharaoh here is seeking the absolute destruction of Israel. Within a matter of a generation or two, the distinctive nation would be gone. The Israelites amalgamated into Egypt, and as such then, there would be no issue. Subtly, Pharaoh here is at work trying to bring about the destruction of the Israelites. And already we noted there's a weakening of the faith, there's been a weakening, in a sense, of the Israelites in that they're not as distinctive as they ought. We notice that especially immediately following their exodus. They're clamoring for the Leaks of Egypt, they want the things of Egypt, and they were not maintaining themselves as distinctively as they ought. The gods of Egypt held an allure. And how quickly and how subtly then the devil would bring about their destruction by 
bringing the women to intermarry with the Egyptian men, and then eventually the demise of a nation. The devil, we know, is behind this, as the devil has been throughout all of history. Throughout all of history, the devil's attempt is to destroy the people of God. And we can trace his attacks through history as he sought to bring down God's children and God's people, and especially to cut them off so that the Messiah would not be able to come. The devil now uses Pharaoh to attack them at what we would say would be a weak point here. Attacking them at the heart, at their sons, whom he seeks to destroy. Now he must have begun with a secret attack, just informing the midwives of what their responsibility would be before him. Summoning them, ordering them that as you're giving birth and assisting in birth, you need to kill then all of the male children. Let the girls live, but kill the boys. And perhaps the midwives even would do it secretly without even the parents realizing so that the parents were to not even realize what was going on here, but all of a sudden, subtly, the mother would be informed their child was born dead. When it doesn't work to instruct the midwives to carry this out, Then Pharaoh makes the decree more broad at the end of the chapter. And he makes more broadly than the decree that every Egyptian and Israelite is instructed to look out for babies. And if they see a baby that's a male, they're to kill it. Or to see to it that it's killed. Tell the soldiers so that the soldiers can come and kill it. The girls alone may live. Now this is the first indication in the Bible of an all-out hatred of the Jewish people. Throughout, throughout the ages, there would be again and again attempts that we would call anti-Semitism to try to destroy the Jews, to cut them off. Hitler trying to do so through the Nazis. But God preserves to himself a people. Despite the attacks of the devil, despite Pharaoh's plans, what happens? We read that God dealt well with the people. And the result is that they multiplied and waxed very mighty. The harder Pharaoh was working to try to weaken them, the stronger they became. As Jehovah God, as we noted last week, was in the midst of them. And God was faithfully preserving to himself a people. God had promised to Abraham that he would make of Abraham a mighty seed. And God would bless Abraham's seed and cause all the nations of the earth to be blessed through him. And now God is bringing about and realizing that glorious promise. That promise of God explains the persecution. This was not just one nation rising up over against another nation. There's a spiritual reality that's evident here and necessary for us to see in this history. This is the attack of the devil on the seed of the woman. We're aware of Genesis 3, verse 15. Genesis 3, verse 15 is that promise that God gave to Adam and Eve after they had fallen into sin. And I will put enmity between thee, speaking now to the serpent and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. God spoke there of the all-out War that would take place throughout history. A war which would be between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. A fierce war. 
enmity that would exist. And remember, that expression of enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent meant that God would restore the seed of the woman in his love. God would embrace them. They were his own. And because he loved them, the devil would hate them. And the devil's opposition would be evident. The seed of the woman is a reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus would rise up as that seed of the woman. He's the one who would crush the head of the devil. That is, all the plans, all the ambitions of the devil. And though his heel would be crushed, the devil would be destroyed as to his intention. This is the one the devil is seeking to destroy. And if the devil can accomplish the destruction of the seed of the woman, he then can effectively bring about his own kingdom, and the demise of God's. And so the devil attacks the people of God because if he can attack them and prevent the people of God from bringing forth the promised seed, then he's able to accomplish his own wicked ends. That battle between the devil and Jehovah God rages through history. And we know that the outcome is not uncertain. The outcome is certain and sure because of what Jesus did. Jesus on the cross at Calvary destroyed the devil. And having the victory through the ascension, he ascended into heaven and he cast the devil out of heaven so that Jesus Christ has already accomplished that wondrous victory. And throughout history then, Jehovah God is realizing now his purpose and his plan for his glory and for his honor. Kill off the Son of God. That's the tempt of the devil. Kill off the people of God. Now, there are many to point to this history and to say this is just another evidence of anti-Semitism. And it's just another attempt of wicked men to try to kill off the Jews. And then they try to make then of Israel something more than God in his word makes of Israel. And so it's important for us to understand the importance and significance also of Israel. God gave the Jews a particular place of giving birth to the Messiah. God raised up the Jews for that purpose, and God used them in a marvelous way, setting them apart from all of the nations of the world and using them as the ones through whom Jesus Christ would come. But the promises of Scripture do not apply to the Jews as a nation. They apply to the Jews as they were typical of the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, of which the Jews were but a picture. And so when God spake the promises to Old Testament Israel, those promises are not to Israel as a nation, they're to Israel as she comprises a spiritual entity. God's promise, for instance, in Genesis 12 verse 3, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's the word of God to Abraham and to his seed, which is the Christ. It's not the word of God to the Jews as a nation. And that becomes evident in Galatians 3, verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He said not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to thy seed, which is Christ. There we have Abraham being identified as the one whom God uses now to bring about the seed of the woman who is 
Christ. Now Romans 9, verses 6 and 7, assist us then in trying to figure all of this out with regard to the Jews and the relationship to Christ. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of the Abraham, seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So that God clearly established the fact that his promises were not to Israel as to a nation, but his promises were to Israel as a spiritual entity comprised of those who were Israel according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. And God's point is this, he will preserve his church. And Israel represented in the old dispensation the church of Jesus Christ. But God made clear already then that it would be broadened and that Abraham would become a blessing to all the nations of the world so that the Gentiles would also be brought into that glorious church. Though the gates of hell open in their wrath and spew out all their hatred and anger toward God and his church, God is faithful and he will preserve his church unto himself. He's holding his saints in the palm of his hand and he keeps them ever before his eyes in an expression of love and care for them as Jehovah who will preserve and keep them for his glory. God's purpose to bring Israel out as a nation in order that they might be preserved as the spiritual body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. And so this history then is not just about a nation, it's about the church, it's about God's saints. Also, this history is not merely about Men being cruel to men due to the fall of man into sin, the depravity of man becomes evident in so many ways. And the ways of wickedness and the ways of sin are the ways of shedding blood, the ways of murder. Romans 3 describes that fruit of sin in very, very graphic detail. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's Romans 3, verses 14 to 18. Such is the depravity of man. Men are given over to murder. And we have that now displayed for us in this history through Pharaoh. This wicked man thinks nothing of killing all these babies. He's a depraved man who hates God. There's no fear of God before his eyes. He knows better. He knows what's right and wrong. As all men know, there's a God. They know what's right and wrong. But he refuses to give God the glory. And he suppresses that knowledge and unbelief. And due to the depravity of his heart, explained there in Romans 3, he now is swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are his way. He will not give God glory. He will not heed God's will. He will pursue this way of sin and depravity. Man has not changed at all. Today, men and women continue to kill. The depravity of the nature has not changed. By God's grace, God implants new life in his children. And he brings us to know that regenerated life in order that we might know victory from that bondage of sin and death. 
But natural man, apart from Christ, continues in that depravity and in that sinfulness. And Satan's constant strategy is to prevent the birth of the Messiah and to do so in any way that he's capable of doing, and especially in the way of murder, in the way of killing. And so our society, our leaders, continue the slaughter of babies, the murder of helpless infants, the sin of abortion. It's profoundly devilish. Even though it's no longer protected by the federal law, the sin continues to prevail in our nation, state after state. And millions of babies throughout the world are killed as the rights of men, the rights of women, are placed above that of the babies. We live in a society where men talk about development. They talk about progress. How have we changed from Egypt of old? And the problem we know is with the heart of man. The heart of man, apart from God's grace, is corrupt. It has no care for anyone, no care for anything. Anyone who gets in their way is their enemy. And there's a love for self. And there's a willingness to expend life. For the sake of self. This is the horror of sin. This is the depravity into which all mankind has fallen. And but by the grace of God, there we go as well. God will judge this sin. God is already judging it in the lives of individuals and the lives of families. But it's important that we not point the finger at the world. We need to look at ourselves as well. Due to pride, due to wanting to preserve our own names, the place of our own family our name in the church, we can become also prone to the sin of abortion and to other grievous sins. Perhaps we put our daughters on birth control pills because we don't want to have to deal with the consequences, perhaps, of their sexual immorality. And so they can go on and sin without any consequences, consequences that God has ordained would be for their good. Perhaps it's ways that we pursue to eliminate situations or circumstances that might become embarrassing in our own families. And so we encourage, perhaps, taking of the pill that you can take the next day that would, in essence, murder that conceived child. A young girl gets pregnant outside of marriage. The temptation is to keep the matter quiet, to try to pursue ways to try to maybe even eliminate that pregnancy. Such is the depravity that also clings yet to our natures and the temptations that we need to do battle against. I remember some years ago talking to some of the movement, some of those who were in the movement to oppose abortion in Sioux Falls. And they had got to hold records that were used by the abortion clinic in Sioux Falls. I think they had actually got into dumpsters and they got these records out. And they had all the lists of the names of the girls that had submitted to abortions along with their parents. And it was striking how a huge percentage of those names came from Sioux County, Iowa, from Dutch families, came from homes that were committed to the Reformed faith, but did not want to face the embarrassment of their daughter in this situation. So the devil can get a hold of us. Rather than fear God, we fear man. We fear our own 
name, our own prominence, and we minimize the glory and honor of God. Beloved, we must take heed that such sin not take hold of our own natures and lead us in that way of sin. By God's grace, our hearts are turned unto the Lord in repentance, in confession. By God's grace, we weep over our sins of murder. We weep over the sins that we commit against our fellow saints and against one another. We weep over the sins where we esteem our name, our own honor above that of others. And God works healing and God works grace by which he grants the ability to go forward through the blood of Jesus Christ who suffered for all our sins, including those sins of selfishness, those sins of murder. We find here the commandments of God, openly violated, despised, hated by depraved sinners. And at the heart is an assault, an assault on God's Son. How cruel the devil is. Just think about it. What is worse, if someone would come to you and say, I'm going to take your possessions, I'm going to take this away from you. Or if they come and say, I'm going to take this away from your son. I'm going to take this away from your daughter. They try to get at us through our children. That moves us to the height of anger. Pharaoh, he goes after the people of God, but he goes after them by going after now their children. And the devil behind it wages a fierce war now against the Son of God. But God is faithful, and God will turn away all the attempts of the devil to get at his own Son, his precious Israel. God loves his Son, and God will preserve his Son, and God will call his Son out of Egypt. God so hates the threats of Pharaoh And God so hates the actions of Pharaoh that God will rise up in holy vengeance in time and he will do to Egypt even more than what Pharaoh was attempting to do to Israel. You children remember the tenth plague. Pharaoh is trying to get at Israel through her sons. God will kill all the firstborn of Egypt, cutting them off in vengeance. And he will do so in order to bring Egypt down. The devil continues that fierce war today against Jehovah and against his church and against his children. But God is faithful and God will preserve his own even as he preserved his saints here in Egypt. He loves his Israel. He hates the threats on his beloved son and on his beloved bride. And he will see too her deliverance. God did so in this history through the faithful midwives. And we do well to look at them for a moment. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shipra, and the name of the other, Pua, in verse 15. The midwives were like nurses. Um, The Hebrews didn't have hospitals back then where they would go to have their babies. And so these nurses would assist the mothers in having their babies. So that when the mother was ready to deliver her baby, she would send out a messenger and the messenger would go in order to fetch a midwife who would then come to assist the mother with all of the necessary aspects of bringing forth that child. Most likely there were far more than just two. But these must have been the ones who were the leaders of the midwives. 
and perhaps the ones then who delegated to the others what areas or what cities they were laboring in. Extremely striking is the fact that we have now, for the first time in 300 years, names given, again in the Bible. Joseph is the last name that's been mentioned. Notice Pharaoh is mentioned, but we never know the name of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is simply the title for the leader of Egypt. But now, the names of these midwives are mentioned. Shipra and Pua. God doesn't give us the name of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's name doesn't matter. But these women's names matter. God remembers them because they're his children. They reverenced God. They stood in awe of God. And out of that fear, they obeyed God and were willing even to obey God above men. Beloved, that's your and my calling, to fear God. And out of that fear of God, we're willing to disobey men because our loyalty is to Jehovah God alone. Now, there are many discussions about these midwives. Whether they were Egyptians, whether they were Hebrews, it's difficult for us to discern with any kind of clarity and and for sure know what they were. But the text seems to imply they were Hebrew midwives. Not in the sense that they were actually Hebrews. They were likely Egyptians who were caring for the Hebrews. And in that sense, they were the midwives of the Hebrews. It's rather impossible to believe that Pharaoh would have taken Hebrew women and pulled them aside and instructed them to kill their own. Likely, these were Egyptians. And if his intention, especially was to do it in a more quiet way, a more subtle way, likely then these Egyptian midwives were called into Pharaoh, and Pharaoh now was given them instruction as to what he expected of them in their interactions with the Hebrews. But what Pharaoh failed to reckon with was the faith of these midwives. They believed in God. Remarkable. Perhaps it was the witness that the Hebrews had made, so that the Hebrews had talked with the midwives as they interacted with them in bringing forth their children. And God had used their witness to bring these midwives to know God, to fear him, to love him, and to refuse then to take part in this act of murder. We read in verse 17, but the midwives feared God. They would not obey the command of Pharaoh. They refused to kill those babies. Now after some time, Pharaoh calls for these midwives, and he requires them to give an answer as to why it's not happening. He hears perhaps that the boys are being allowed to live. What's going on? Why are the midwives not carrying out the command that he gave them? The midwives claimed to Pharaoh that the Hebrew women had their children more quickly than the midwives could arrive. That's what they express there when they say that The women are lively. That is, they're delivered before the midwives come in unto them so that they're not able to get there quick enough. By the time they get there, they've already had their baby. There may well have been some truth to that given the fact of how God was increasing the Israelites. So many women were having babies 
And those babies were coming in such abundance that perhaps the midwives were not able to keep up. And therefore, there was some truth to the fact that they got there and the babies would be born already. God was richly blessing his people with increase. And that's striking as well. If there was any time during which the Israelites might say, let's not have children, let's try everything to avoid having children, now would be the time. And yet, they're having children in abundance, according to God's blessing. These Hebrew women, blessed by God, were healthy, they were strong. God was preserving them in health as well, so that they were not frail and feeble, sickly, or dying. And the result then is that the children were being born. But regardless, there's a sense in which these midwives were not being altogether truthful. Standing before Pharaoh, they give what we would say at best yet would be partially true. They don't stand on the basis of their faith as they ought. Think, for instance, of the apostles when the apostles were confronted. Why are you continually preaching yet about Christ when we commanded you to cease? And the apostles said, boldly, we ought to obey God rather than men. Instead, these women give a different reason beside the point. And though we fault them, we can understand that temptation again. They feared God, and yet, What would they say to Pharaoh? How would they stand before Pharaoh? And here, beloved, is the wonder. God blesses them. When God works his fear in our hearts, that fear moves us to live as though God is the most important one in all of our lives. And as we live in that fear of God and in the pursuit of God's will, we seek after Jehovah God. God is more glorious to me than anything else. God is the one whom I love. He's the one whom I cherish. He's the one who's given me his own son. And therefore, I live unto him. And that fear of God dictates the whole of my life. And as a result of that fear of God, I desire to obey him and to keep all of his commandments. He is God alone. And I'm called to live before him in godly fear and obedience. That truth that God is God is what dictates all of our lives. It's what dictates all the decisions that we make in life. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I want. Jehovah and his will is what's most important. It doesn't matter what I think will be the consequences. It doesn't matter about the embarrassment or what the outcome might be. God and doing what's right in his eyes is what's most important. These ladies did not fear Pharaoh's gods. They did not put their trust in the Egyptian gods. They loved Jehovah, and they desired his well-being and his glory. They gave indication of that faith, just as Rahab did, who hid the spies with peace. And yet Rahab, too, as we well know, was involved in a degree of deception. But God blesses these women. As tempting as it is for us to deceive and as tempting as it is to lie when confronted by authorities, we need to be willing to speak the truth in love. Not only must these women be an inspiration for us with regard to doing what's right, they also must serve as an inspiration as well for us to walk by faith and to trust Jehovah God. 
as doctors, as nurses, upholding life, increasingly, the pressure is going to be placed upon us, whether it's in the early years or in the later years, to not maintain the sanctity of life. Will we stand for God and for his glory or give in to the will of men? Increased pressure is going to come upon us as the end gets closer. And the devil works subtly again to try to get us to fall prey to his will and to his temptations. We need to pray for the strength, to stand for what is right, to confess Jehovah God is the reason alone for my obedience. But we're also going to fail. We're weak, we're sinful, we're inclined to make excuses for our obedience, just as these women were. Instead of saying, I won't work on Sunday because that's the Lord's day and because I fear Jehovah. How easy is it instead to say, but it's a family day and we want to use the day for family. What are we afraid of? Greater wrath? But beloved, here's the beauty of this history. God sees the heart and God knew that the heart of these women was right with him. He's the one that had given them renewed hearts and God preserves his own and he uses weak, Again, sinful means for his own glory and for the preservation of his church. What fruit do we see here in this history? In verse 21, we read, Because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. Perhaps as we read that, you wondered, what does that mean? Who made houses and and what are we talking about here? Literally, the idea is this. God established their households. So that God remembered them in their generations. And God made it so that they had children and their children's children. And likely they were to a degree incorporated into Israel to some way, in some manner or in some measure. So that we have a wonderful truth here. God remembers us. Jehovah God remembers us and our children. And God remembered these women. And God worked grace in their hearts, and God gave them a place in his kingdom, a place in his covenant. Again, God is pleased to use weak means. The church, weak, sinful, but beloved by God. And God works his fear in our hearts. And God is pleased to preserve and to keep us and our households. We see God's covenant faithfulness and the marvelous nature by which Jehovah God preserves unto himself a people in their generations for his glory. But there's also other fruit. Not only is there that positive fruit in the lives of the midwives, the result of the obedience of the midwives is that greater suffering comes upon the people of God. Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river. Now, God is using this to increasingly alienate his people from the Egyptians in order to deliver them as a nation out. But this command now goes more broadly to everyone in Egypt. Everyone now has the responsibility. Kill all of the Hebrew boys. Don't allow a baby boy that you witness and see to live. And now the river comes into play. That's striking. And we're going to see the connection of Pharaoh to the river as we proceed through this history. The river, which is a reference to the Nile River, 
was one of the gods of the Egyptians. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile River. The Nile gave to them their life. It provided them with their substance, they believed. And therefore they bowed before the river. And Pharaoh would get up early in the morning in order to go to the river, to bow down to the river. And now what is Pharaoh doing? Pharaoh, in his worship of the river, is offering the Hebrew boys to his God. How pleased will his God be with him? He will please his God to such a measure now that he's going to give to his God all the Hebrew boys. And as Pharaoh is offering the Hebrew boys to his God, he looks to that God then to help him. Pharaoh realizes there's trouble here. The more I'm afflicting them, the more they're increasing. And so now, if only I can get my God to assist me here, I'll give him the babies of the Hebrews in order that he rises up in order to assist me in this battle. He looks to his God, the Nile. And as you children know, what? Futility. The Nile River is not going to help him. The Nile River can't help deliver Pharaoh from the Israelites. As a matter of fact, God's going to demonstrate that in turning that entire river into blood. But the Almighty God of heaven and earth will not allow his name to be blasphemed. Jehovah God will not allow his name to be insulted by the heathen. We remember this throughout all of history again. David goes to battle against Goliath. And remember, they said, David, you need to have some... You need to have some more protection. You need to have some armor. You need to be better prepared. And David said, no. That man is defying the God of Israel. And God will not allow that one to live who defies Jehovah God. And so it is with regard to Pharaoh. Pharaoh stands in defiance against Jehovah, the God of Israel. And God will bring down all evildoers. And God will reward his children with a blessing of salvation. God will bring about vindication. Pharaoh is not going to help the Israelites. Pharaoh is not going to be helpful for the Israelites. The church of Jesus Christ does not look to earthly governors, earthly leaders for her assistance and for her help. Their seeming tender mercies are in reality cruel. Pharaoh's going to attempt to come across as one that's looking out for their well-being after this all goes down. He's looking out to assist them. Proverbs 12, verse 10, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. The wicked seek to bring God's people into bondage. They want to keep them in dependence. They want to keep them in bondage. The wicked rulers will not labor to save, but to destroy. Salvation is of the Lord alone. And this history leads us to that glorious testimony, the wonder by which Jehovah God will raise up the deliverer. That deliverer will be cast into the river as well, but not in the manner in which Pharaoh desired, not in order to die. And Jehovah will raise up Moses as the deliverer for his people. Jehovah God preserving to himself a people and delivering and bringing his son out of bondage into the victory and the joy of that heavenly Canaan. God is faithful, and we look to him. 
And God calls us to spiritual courage. As we take note of the depravity of man, as we see around us that depravity evident, our calling is to stand for what is right, to display the love of God in Jesus Christ, to live out of that faith, to walk according to the fear of Jehovah God. And as the days get closer to the end, the more we're going to be tempted in that regard and the more challenging it's going to become the rage of the authorities is going to increase toward God and his church and they're going to go after our children they're going to try to find cruel ways to try to bring about our destruction will you go along with the authorities for the sake of peace for the sake of prosperity or will we stand over against our employer Stand over against the authority, over against the ruler, and insist we must obey God rather than men. And then be willing to take also the consequences, the punishment that will come. By God's grace, we serve God regardless of the personal cost. We are weak, we are sinful, we too fail. But we look to God and we look to the wonder of His grace to work in us the words to speak, the courage to stand. And we believe God will preserve His own. Your names are written in His book. And He will work repentance. He will work sorrow for sin. He will work the blessed assurance of that salvation that is in Jesus Christ alone. Amen.